welcome to the So Novel Podcast. I'm your host Jess and in this fortnightly podcast I will be chatting all things books as well as interviews with authors, publishers and bookstagrammers. So whether you're looking for your next read or you want to know the story behind the story then this is the podcast for you. In today's episode, I chat to the author and entrepreneur Sarah Davidson. Sarah is a lawyer turned entrepreneur and social media influencer. We chat about her debut book, Seize the Yay, and how you can learn to seize your yay and find your way to play. Hi, Sarah, and welcome to the Stonable Podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) I think I'm more excited. (laughs) Big fangirl moment. (laughs) <laughs> Stop. Oh my God. We can have an excitement off. I feel like it'll just be levels and levels of ah! we've been rescheduling so many times in a very 2020 <laughs> situation. And I, I kind of feel like if you haven't rescheduled something five times and let the excitement build up, then you have you really done it? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I totally agree. <laughs> now I wanted to start off first of all with what are you currently reading? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I have been working my way through a lot of Australian authors, actually, who I discovered this year. I have always been such a big bookworm, but my legal career, that kind of five years of my life and, and uni, kind of killed the joy for a little while. So it took me a bit to get back into reading, but I've discovered that I love crime, true crime, crime fiction. Even though I'm very yay and bubbly and fluffy, for some reason, serial killers and murder mysteries really get me going. And there's just been some amazing Australian talent, like explode onto the scene. So Chris Hammer... Um, who else? Trent Dalton I've been loving, Jane Harper. Uh, there was another one, oh, Kyle someone. Mm, I just Kyle Perry? Bluffs. Yeah. I think so, yeah. And those really outback, remote, beautiful scenery but hectic small town murder like mysteries have been just getting me through this year. <laughs> <laughs> that's your escapism, is it? Uh, yeah, the thriller and the crime. <laughs> It's really interesting though, I think because I used to be that person who thought if I was reading anything, I was relaxing, but then I'd go and read like a self-development book or a business book or listen to a podcast on like self-betterment and, you know, I'd get really stressed about my to-do list. I've realized it has to be so far removed from my day-to-day life to pull my brain out of work that I think crime is almost a necessity. Like it has to just be so far away from my day-to-day existence, but I love it. Yeah, no, I totally get that. If I'm in a bit of a reading slump, like I always resort to like a thriller, like, yeah, I love Jane Harper and I've only heard really good things about the bluff as well, the bluffs. And (gasps) um, yeah, everyone loves it. Yeah. We have a little book club between my mum, my aunties and I, because we all like the same kind of crime books. So we all schedule who's going to buy which authors so we don't overlap and we get all the Lee Childs, like all the, <laughs> we get all of the same, like we just have this pile and we put little post-it notes in the book to like put everyone's initials so you can cross it off and know who to give it to next. <laughs> so that is so cool. We make the rounds. Yeah, it's really cute. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, we're here today to chat about your book, Seize the Yay. So can you tell us a bit about the story behind the story? 
<gasps> Absolutely. So uh, I'm not very good at telling short stories, but I'll try not to chew your ear off. <laughs> so basically, it's the written form version of what I call my CZA philosophy, which came or started as a podcast about two years ago, but really has been brewing and culminating and clarifying itself pretty much for my whole life. And it's the idea of getting off the productivity hamster wheel, kind of moving away from the very distracting but gratifying ideas of being busy, being productive, being successful objectively, living your life according to societal norms or what other people think you should do. And just come back to the basics of what makes you yay? What makes you what brings that inner child out that used to just be so excited and so sparkly? And I feel like as adults, we just let layers of seriousness and obligation and certainty and worry cloud that sense of play and just joy and make it difficult for us to actually sort out what we should do and what we think we should do versus what we want to do and what we're good at and what might light us up. And Going back to the very, very beginning, I was adopted uh, from South Korea when I was six months old, don't have any memories and have only had the most wonderful experience with my family, country bumpkin, Caucasian Australians with a fully blown Asian little girl on dairy farms. It was a great time. But it's left me with always this very, very keen sense of two things. Firstly, sliding doors moments and the idea that but for very small things and one-off opportunities, your pathway can be completely different So you never know what's around the corner. And the other thing is an intense sense of appreciation and gratitude for the life I have because it was almost very different. Korea was a third world country at the time in the 80s and I obviously was born into a situation where I needed to be adopted so it could have been such a different life. And I think that's led to a lifelong obsession with overdoing it firstly but just trying everything My parents were so supportive of us trying every sport, every extracurricular activity, every academic subject, even if we were terrible at them, just really pushed our curiosity and thirst for adventure and life and experience, but also appreciating that we were privileged enough to be able to do those things. And that always made it very hard to settle down and choose one thing because I liked everything. I was like, oh, life, I'm really nerdy, but I also love the arts, I'm kind of always say I've been a bit equal parts nerd burger and arty farty. And that continued all the way through school, all the way through uni. I could never just choose one thing. So even when I got to, you know, uni, I was like, I'm going to do arts and law because both sides of both spectrums of my personality need to be united somehow. And I ended up choosing, uh, I, I got the marks obviously to get into law and then studied really hard to get a good job in a law firm because I still didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what jobs existed back then. I was very much in that common bucket of there's doctors, lawyers, teachers, like I had such a limited view of the world. And I, I think looking back, I was just so guided by what was sensible, what people should do. And if you happen to be good at it, there's also a sense of obligation that you should do something. And I'd done well in my law degree. So I started my professional life as a corporate mergers and acquisitions lawyer and I spent three years in an incredible firm and actually never got to the point where I wanted to leave. I never grew out of it. I never hated it. I thought it was the most wonderful place to start my career. I was surrounded by amazing people to learn from, so smart and so switched on, learned everything about markets and shares and business uh, and got to travel. I got to work in Hong Kong. I just had 
a wonderful time, but without realizing that the creative side of me was completely falling away. There was no room for it in that life, but I was very distracted by climbing a corporate ladder that everyone else thought was successful and gratified by, I'd come out through uni in the GFC. I was like, oh, I have a job and a wage. Like, you know, how dare I ever inquire whether I might want anything else or anything better. And that's what gives me goosebumps now because I wasn't unhappy. And I think people who are actively unhappy will make a change, but people who are just coasting and are just like, this is fine. They might never know that you don't have to just settle for fine because they probably won't, you know, create, you know, take a step that's outside of what they know. So it was only a very happy accident that actually showed me by contrast that corporate and a legal career satisfied only the less dominant half of my personality and my creative side is what I'm really supposed to do. So I went to, again, sorry, this is such a long story. <laughs> no, I love it. I can't, I can't do dot points. <laughs> my now husband had a creative agency who worked on a big campaign that went to, um, to fund a school in Rwanda of all places. So we got to spend a month there. And that was the first time I'd ever separated success and happiness. I thought genuinely thought they were the same thing. If I'm successful, I'll be happy and I don't need to cultivate happiness separately. But I saw over there, instead of feeling so grateful for what we had, I saw purer happiness in kids playing with leaves for 12 hours of the day than the kids back home glued to screens and they have everything but they can't find joy. We have everything but we can't not be anxious and stressed. And it was a real turning point of these concepts maybe aren't the same. Maybe happy is different. Maybe joy doesn't need to be productive. Maybe you can rest and also have fun. And the other thing was I brought home a gut parasite, uh, came home, A-type, didn't take a day off, over three months got progressively sicker and collapsed into adrenal fatigue. And that was what led to being banned from coffee, discovering the marvels of matcha powder, starting a business as a side hustle, and finding out there was a whole other world that suited me so much better than what I had gone into. Uh, and Seize the A now is the total transformation of unlearning all of how I used to measure my life, very financial, measurable metrics, and moving towards actually it's okay to choose joy. It's okay to choose things that do light you up and often things go better because you are so much more invigorated and you are able to really dedicate yourself wholly to what you're doing uh, and it's been six years since then. Wow, that is amazing. And I loved when you covered that in the book as well, because you take us on this journey of, yeah, pretty much just what you said through how it came about, how Match Maiden has led to all of these other possibilities and led to all of these other amazing opportunities as well. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing that has switched in my mind and that I, I became really passionate about sharing with other people who were feeling how I was feeling earlier, very confused and lost when suddenly the life I had, I was suddenly reevaluating that, was when I first went into law, I really thought I'd made a forever decision. I thought that was my job forever and I was meant to settle down and that was it. And then when I moved into business, I was like, now this is my thing. I've, you know, stepped out of the comfort zone, pat myself on the back. I'm never going to need to evolve ever again. But I've really come to appreciate that we try and get to the end. We're so instant gratuity focused that we all just want to know the answer straight away. We want to find our passion, live our passion and done. But really it's 
more like life is more a series of chapters and in one chapter of your life you're going to need a certain amount you know a certain job structure a life structure then in the next chapter you're going to evolve your comfort zone is going to catch up to you and you're going to need to step out again and at every you know phase of your life what happens around you how you work how you rest what balance looks like it's going to be different it's not meant to be this one static successful life structure that you find that i was constantly looking for because even if it was that and you got there, what if you got there at 20? What would you do for the rest of your life? There'd be no challenge. There'd be no change. There'd be no evolution. So I've really enjoyed embracing the lack of certainty almost and the lack of knowing where my 5, 10, 20-year plan, what it looks like, and rather just being in the chapter I'm in while I'm there. And once I start to feel the niggles of maybe you need to agitate for a little bit of a move this way or, or this area is not, you know, you've settled become comfortable in this area, whatever it is, I think if you start to see life as a journey of steps and stepping stones, I always say that quote, you know, you don't have to see that staircase, whole staircase to take the first step. You just relax about the pathway and stop trying to get to the end all the time and you can enjoy the process. Yeah, I love that. Now, speaking of chapters, I wanted to talk about chapter three in the book, which is titled done is better than perfect. So I think for me, this is the chapter I resonated with the most (laughs) because we have spoken about this previously, like just before we started as well. (laughs) But but, um, this was the chapter that pushed me to start this podcast. So I had been (gasps) thinking about this idea for a while and I was just always waiting for, you know, the right time and, you know, the right circumstances and these things have to be all lined up before I can do that. And then I read this and I was like, light bulb moment. And (laughs) yeah, I was like, you know what? That is so true. If I, if I keep putting it off, waiting for the right time, you know, there's never a right time for anything. You know, we, we learn as we grow type thing. So can you tell me more about this chapter and what your light bulb moment was? Oh my gosh, you have just made my week. It just (laughs) makes me so, so happy because all I could ever hope from a book is to spark even a tiny aha moment for, for someone who is going through something that I did. And I think that's probably been my biggest personal transformation is in that exact area. By default, I'm a perfectionist. By default, I would wait till the very last minute until everything is absolutely perfect before I even tried to start, let alone announce something or launch it. And it got even, it's interesting to me looking back that certain environments will nurture certain parts of you and other environments will, you know, accentuate other parts of your personality and all what becomes to the forefront of your life is what you put your energy into. And when I was a lawyer, my job was literally not only to get everything perfect, but to think of everything that could go wrong and then avoid that thing or or put out exactly every single scenario had to be accounted for. There was no, oh, just, you know, throw it out to the wind. Like life will work out how it's meant to. Like there's none of that. And the perfectionism was to the point where for weeks on end, I would go back and forth with a supervisor over where the full stop goes or where the semicolon is used or whether that word should be in or out of something. You know, it was such a minute level of perfection that if I was left to my own devices, I would have never achieved much innovation in life because my brain was trained to do the opposite. 
And I truly now believe you can unlearn anything that you find unproductive because I am wired to be a perfectionist and I've been able to leave that all behind to allow me to do stuff because when we first got into business, I was still like that. I was very much like, okay, we need to get seven graphic designers to draw the logo. We need 10 million websites to beta test and everything needs to be perfect. And my husband, who thank goodness has been brought the complete opposite perspective to our life and business partnership has only had businesses and only knows that that holds you back and that you'll figure out on you know as you go what's right even if you do wait till it's perfect you might launch your customers might think something else is perfect and you'll have to change it anyway he was so much of the opinion that every minute you don't launch once it's at least a minimum viable product that's, you know, able to be consumed without killing anyone. Like once you've got your bare minimum standards ready, you're missing out on valuable feedback to make it perfect by not actually just putting it out there. You're losing time to be the first person to market when a competitor could easily just jump in at any time. You don't know what other people are planning. And I reckon it took me maybe a year or two to completely rewire my default setting of, oh my God, we can't let it out, to actually as soon as it's ready, like the minute that it meets all the things that are legally required, just get things out there because the market is very forgiving. Your customers, whoever, whether it's a product or a service, love being brought along for the ride. I'm sure you found that with your podcast. You know, no one expects you to be a rocket scientist as soon as you start. They love that you share the vulnerability and they love that there's at the beginning a real chance to give you feedback and say, we would love you to explore this a little bit more or that a little bit more. And it brings people along as well. And and you're constantly learning yourself. So I really, I really have have come to embrace that whole idea of um, just rip the band-aid. Don't wait until the perfect moment. It will never be perfect anyway. And the other thing is, which is tied to another chapter about self-doubt, you're probably, even if you are ready, you're probably never going to think you are because our default is to underestimate our abilities. Our default is to say, well, I mean, you know, it's your idea. You've done this, so it's probably not going to work. So it's sort of like you've got to preempt that cycle. You know it's going to happen. It's totally natural, but you've just got to get it out there before you've had a chance to overthink it, which again is my default position. Let's overthink this for about five years before we do anything. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's keep thinking about it and hopefully it'll just, you know, manifest itself without actually doing anything. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But by then, I always feel like sometimes you have a great idea if you've put that idea out into the world, someone else will be onto that idea as well. Like if you've thought of it, someone else somewhere else is doing it too. Yes, yes, so true. And can you tell us how this played into Matcha Maiden, how it developed through that? Like I know I've heard your story about how that all started kind of from the ground up. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, (laughs) so I love reflecting on this time so much because I think once you do get a couple of years into a business journey or any journey, you forget just how raw and total, what a whirlwind of like having no idea what on earth we were doing. You forget how like bad you were at the start. (laughs) 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 And this is the bit I love to remind people about. Everyone starts somewhere And you don't have to start with an empire. No one wakes up like that. The whole premise of the CZA podcast is to go back to the very beginning and remind people that everyone started from scratch, from an idea, and they had to go from nil to something. And 
tying in with that whole idea of not waiting till everything's perfect, I also think there's something to be said about, you might remember the chapter of um, dream big, plan small. You have to dream big enough to go beyond what's familiar and current to you. But if you dream too big, you'll get too overwhelmed and you'll never start. And if we'd been dreaming of the business we have now, I would have thought it's impossible. There's absolutely no way. So you have big ultimate dreams, but when you're planning, all you really need to do is think about the next individual step to get one bit closer to where you want to go. And for us, I often remind my, reminded myself back then, we only need what we need to sell one bag. Because if we can pack and label and ship out one bag, we can pack and label and ship out 10 bags. And we probably won't need to change that system till 100 bags and maybe even more. Same with a podcast. You only really need the equipment at the start to do one episode. That's all you need to think about because after you've done one, you'll figure out the rest. So I kind of really can and Nick helped a lot because he's so used to this process. Every time I go, what about international shipping? What about tax and VAT in the UK? And blah, blah. He's like, we're not shipping to Melbourne yet. Don't even worry about those steps. Just we've got tea. We'd already ordered the tea for ourselves. There was a big gap in the market. The idea came about because we ordered too much for ourselves <laughs> and then had a lot of tea left over. Then the next thing was, well, what do you put the tea in? So we thought oh, bags, obviously, went straight to Google. What kind of bags insulate matcha properly? Which ones are going to, you know, protect it from heat and moisture? And also who sells them and how much are they and where do people get them? And it's all Google. And the next step was, well, we've got to close them. So what do you close bags with? A heat sealer. Again, I knew none of this before, but you can find out everything through Google. It, it's very clever. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was, well, how do we get the tea into the bags? We had no idea about packers. We didn't have enough capital because, you know, it was just the two of us doing a hobby. And we thought, why don't we pack it ourselves? We just looked up the regulations of what kind of facility you need to use, hired a friend's commercial kitchen and just started packing it in our undies because we didn't want to get fibres or sweat or anything in the bags. And it was just so DIY, so unbelievably ad hoc and thrown together. But we kept that ad hoc system for the first year because it was enough because you're faking it till you make it most of the time in business. But on the outside, a customer receives this beautifully packed and sealed bag with a proper label and an ABN and everything. They don't know that you have absolutely no idea what you're doing. And that's the best part. It's like the start was just so day by day, like wing it, get through each day, figure out problems as they come. And again, like as each thing would happen, we'd just tweak and address the process. So as our, you know, first round went out and our labels weren't as waterproof as, as the bag, so they'd start to get damaged, we just decided, okay, we need to do some more research on stickers. As our volumes got bigger, we ended up swapping from stickers altogether to printed bags because we could afford to do a big run of 1,000 bags and then 5,000 bags and then 10,000 bags. And I would say that the whole process has been scaling only as each next step became absolutely necessary to give us a chance to firstly bootstrap it financially and not go broke just starting but also to grow into each phase and again I was like so desperate to just get to the end to get to a big office a big car park a big staff you know logos on everything matrimated vehicles driving around town and it's none of that was necessary and Actually, we got away with such a small operation for so much longer than I ever would have imagined, which kept us really flexible and meant we didn't have to 
go through processes to approve everything or we didn't have seven staff to pay wages for at the beginning. You know, you can do so much more than you think you can if you just get crafty about it. And there's so much information on the internet. I can't even tell you. You can start most businesses by yourself right now. Like just do some research. (laughs) (laughs) That was me with podcasting. It was like, what do I need to start a podcast? What's the best microphone? Google was, yeah, a blessing. (laughs) And I used to think that was such a romanticized story. I was like, "Eh, everyone went to Google to start their business. And now I'm like, everyone I know started their business that way. Yeah. That's just half of the course, you know, none of us know anything. We all just know how to Google and that's all you need. Why would you waste brain space on anything else? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, Another chapter that I wanted to touch on too was the comparison is the thief of joy chapter. So I really loved this one too. I think in the bookstagram community, this is a topic that is discussed all the time. So on social media, we are constantly comparing ourselves to others. And on Bookstagram, you know, we compare our feeds to others. We compare how many books we've read in a month. We compare how many followers we have. The list goes on. How can we diffuse this train of thought and this comparison? Yeah, gosh, it's so interesting that even as I was writing that chapter and going through what I, you know, what strategies have been helpful for me, I was experiencing it again, thinking, look at these other authors, like she writes faster than me and she's got this many books. And it's such a natural human reflex. I think it always has been. That's just a human you know, it's just what we do. We look at other people's lives for inspiration, but often let it go a little bit too far and start to make it detract from the joys of what we we have. Mm -hmm. And I think the digital age has been so wonderful in democratising influence and connecting people across geographical boundaries, but it does also heighten the opportunity to see the minute details of other people's lives. So a couple of things have really helped me. The first thing is just to stop expecting myself to be immune to it because I think, again, that perfectionism thing, I want to be, you know, particularly when I'm writing chapters on it for other people to read, I want to be able to say, I don't get comparison anymore. But of course I do. (laughs) It's so natural. I don't think anyone gets to the point where they're just so unbelievably comfortable that they don't ever experience it. So firstly, be kind to yourself when it does flare and there will be times of your life where you might get a rejection or you might have a setback so you're feeling more sensitive that's probably a time when you know it's maybe going to be worse and the biggest strategy which is so silly and juvenile but also has been my most useful one that I wrote about is just blinkers the same way that horses literally have blinkers so they can't see any other horses race and they run their own, which allows them to run faster because they're not distracted by what everyone else is doing. I just put up metaphorical blinkers as soon as I can feel that something's triggering me. And in our real lives, I feel like we're getting a lot better at avoiding toxic influences or friends or environments, but our digital worlds where we maybe spend more time, we're not as strict. We're not as discerning about what we follow, about what we look at, about where we put our energy. And often I think most of us can resonate with the situation of knowing a certain page makes you feel like crap or a certain person's account and still looking at it all the time. <laughs> yeah. In fact, looking at it more than you look at other things. Yeah. <laughs> and knowing it makes you feel crappy and you're just still like, okay, I'm going to go deeper and deeper in case it gets better and it never gets better. <laughs> 
So I've just gotten really strict at reminding myself, okay, Blinkers, this page is really triggering you right now. Maybe mute it for a little while or counterbalance that with making an effort to find some pages that really make you feel good or that really uplift you or that actually there are lots of pages that beautifully address comparison and give you reminders daily of beautiful quotes or ways that women work together and lift each other up. And there's so much choice that we don't think we have and that we're passive to the content we receive, but actually you're crafting your own worlds all the time. So I just think blinker out the things that you know make you feel really crappy and try and limit your exposure to them and be really aware of certain periods of your life where it's going to be harder. So before my wedding, there's only one time in my life where I had to unfollow every bridal page was when I had between buying my dress and not being able to change it (laughs) to wearing it. I couldn't look at any other dress because, of course, all I'm going to do is her dress is better, I want this change, but I can't do anything about it. So how was that going to do anything except take away the joy of how much I loved my dress? So I just unfollowed them all. And then as soon as I was married, refollowed them all. (laughs) It's so straightforward. It's like do what you can to control what you can. And when it goes into the realm of what you can't control, like you don't know something's going to come up that's going to make you feel crappy, I think like it's okay to phone a friend when you're feeling really unsettled or really crappy about yourself. That quote about the, you being the, some of the five people you spend the most time with, make sure those five who you're going to lean on in those times are really uplifting, supportive people who will remind you why you're wonderful and remind you all the things that you have that other people don't have. And also who will get, I need friends sometimes who get really hard on me and say, what you're comparing to is also half the picture, maybe even less. You don't actually know, like be careful what you wish for. You could wish for that person's life and not know that there are things, one problems that outweigh all of the things that you think look beautiful, that outweigh all the problems that you have. Like everyone's story comes with so many different elements and you're only privy to a very small percentage of what they are. So not only is the comparison futile because it makes you feel crap, it's also futile because it's not to reality. You're only comparing to what you, you know, what you can't see. And then on top of that, the other thing is in at any time in life, there's going to be someone who's doing better than you and someone who's doing worse than you. Even if you're not getting a distorted image, if you could know every detail of everyone's life, there's still always going to be that. We're not meant to be the same. Not everyone is meant to live the exact same life, with the exact same privilege and the exact same problems. So just reminding yourself that it's actually a waste of time because that exercise spending the few hours that you have in the day, which are already not enough for the things you like doing, it's not going to make your life better or worse. It's just a a silly use of your time and energy. And if you can get someone around you who helps break that cycle when you're in that, you know, it's a bit of a spiral. Like before you spiral all the way down, call someone and be like, I'm just having a moment. I need you to just lift me up and tell me that everything's going to be okay. And you don't want anyone else's life no one else's life affects the quality of yours and and vice versa. Just focus on your own lane as much as you can. Yeah. I love that. And I love that it's talked about more now too. I feel like the last few years, um, yeah, we're talking more about comparison, especially on social media. And I think for me, the period in my life that was the biggest was when I had my first baby. So it was comparing everything. And like you said, I was in all of these Facebook groups about, you know, breastfeeding and the mum's group and you name it, I was in it. And I remember for my second child, I was just like, 
I'm not doing this. I'm not doing that again. I've deleted all of those groups, you know, and then I found myself comparing myself who had two children with someone who only had one child or someone who only had no child. And it was like, you know, like you said, we're all going to compare, but, you know, at least I should be trying, not trying, but comparing someone that's in a similar situation to myself, you know, like that's totally. completely different. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad that it's talked about more now. Absolutely. And it gives us all permission. I think we're going to be better equipped to deal with it if we are talking about it. So we are more aware of it and it's not this subtle, you know, subliminal thing that's happening that none of us are really armed for. And to be reminded that everyone has it also makes you feel a lot better about it. Cause you're like, even the people that we are comparing to are comparing themselves to other people. So it's just, it's just a normal part of life. But something that's also really helped me, particularly around the time of launching a book, when a lot of people launched books at the same time and like in that September slot. And of course it's like, it's, I actually didn't compare as much as I thought I would because we were in Victoria, we're stage four. It was not an even comparison anyway, because no bookstores were open. Like it was, it was a weird time, but it also really reminded me about the idea of sacrifice and how there are certain things that come with the things that you're glorifying and you have to remember the other things that comes with as well. So for example, I think a lot of people glorify fame and they think they want to be famous and they think they want the numbers and they want that person's life because they're so famous and they can do anything they want. And when they actually compare not just the good bits of the fame but the actual lack of total lack of privacy or the open channels of trolling and hatred that come for absolutely no logical reason but purely because that person's famous and because that's just what you're opened up to you know you've got to compare with all the picture you can't just say oh I want to have that level of fame because of all the good bits I would not actually want that because I'm so anti-confrontational and quite sensitive to to any kind of um, negative interaction with people because I'm such a positive person. And even if we don't get along, I just am very usually very amicable about, about it. Like I'm not a confrontational person. I couldn't cope with the good bits because the bad bits would outweigh them. So it's like, it's like don't bother comparing yourself with that yourself with that situation because you wouldn't like it yeah. or it wouldn't suit you. And I think that's another thing that we miss all the time is we compare ourselves to models who their job is to be in the gym all day and we're fitting in fitness around other careers. And then we're like, why don't I look like that? And it's like, would you spend five hours in the gym? Even if I could, I wouldn't. I'm not willing to make that sacrifice because I don't enjoy it that like for five hours a day. So be careful about the actual reality of what you're comparing with too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Now in the book, you coined the term play to yay. Can you tell us a bit more about this term and why play is so important? And I think especially during like the COVID times as well. And how did you incorporate your play whilst you were in lockdown? (gasps) Great question. And something that it became easier to prioritize play during COVID, but also harder because all the things I'd learned were my play DA. I couldn't do anymore. So I had to kind of figure out all new things, new activities. But the term basically came about in my whole transition from one life and mentality to another, when I realized that I was treating everything as linear, 
it was work to rest, rest to work. And I kind of thought if I was going to work, eating my broccoli, going to the gym and sleeping, that was enough. I was ticking off everything on that kind of linear spectrum. But I wasn't making any time for joy. There was no activity or part of the week that was set aside for pleasure. And life is not meant to be you work and you die or you work to sleep and you sleep to work. That's just, I mean, obviously, if you love your job, it's a lot easier to do that. But when there are people, there's the arts, there's like events, like there's a whole aspect of being a human that's part of enjoyment and pleasure. And I had just skipped that entire part out of my life for for years. And I remember when someone said to me, I sort of maybe made the first few comments about one day in decades, I might not be a lawyer. And someone said, well, what else would you do? Like, what are you passionate about? What are your hobbies? And I didn't have an answer. I genuinely did not know what I would do if I had spare time, because I never had spare time. And even if I did, I didn't let myself have spare time. And that really made me think, who am I if I don't know what I like? I don't know what activities make me happy. Whereas as a child, we're so clear on play. There's so much time for play. There's never a question of it being a waste of time. But also the ways that we play, we're very clear on like, I like this, I'll do that activity. I don't like that, so I won't do that activity. Whereas adults, we're like, I should like that activity, so maybe I'll force myself to do it and then pretend that I like it. But And I love that thing, but it's weird, so I'm going to not do it. You know, we get all, it gets muddied. And so I really just came back to the idea that firstly, it's not a lot, it's not a straight line, it's a triangle. You have to be balanced between work, rest and play. And that play element has to be something that is, for me personally, has to be something that's not related to my job because I was counting yoga as play, but I'd go to a yoga studio and there'd be matcha made and stocked there and then I'd have a business conversation and I'd think I'd had a leisure experience, but really I was on, which is where the crime reading and, and crime like podcasts and everything came in because I realised they totally switched me off. That's a total waste of time in terms of, productivity for me. That's not going to teach me anything for my job. It's not going to help me make sales. It's not going to help me create a podcast myself. It's purely because I forget what time it is. I get immersed in a story. I totally enjoy the whole process and I have no idea where I am at the end of it. And that's the kind of activity that I hadn't done for maybe a decade. But that's the activity that I'm like, we are better humans in our jobs, in every area of our life, when we make time for that stuff. For the history of ever, the greatest minds in the world have done golf or have made time for naps or have read, you know, outside of their industry because you get distance, you get a brain refresher, you break the circuit and you also have fun and you, you, you're happy. And I actually had the publisher ask, do you want to keep the word yay? Because it's a little bit childish and it's a little bit juvenile. And I was like, that is why I'm keeping it because I was so serious. I took myself so seriously. Everything was like a long 50 syllable word because I was such an intellectual. And now I'm like, I want us to play like kids. I want us to be, I don't want you to tell me when you feel passionate and engaged. I want you to tell me when you go, yay. Yeah. That's the activity I want you to make time for. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I find like since becoming a mum as well, like I I always thought when I was younger, like I would say to myself, 
when I'm a mom, I'm going to sit down with my kids and we're just going to play all day and we're going to have so much fun. And then, you know, you're an adult and it's like, I've got to tick this off. I've got to take that off. I've got this to do. I've got that to do. And the whole day gets away with you. And it's like, I, I didn't get to sit down and and play. And if I do, I find I'm sitting there, you know, pushing around a car going zoom, zoom, thinking of everything (laughs) else I've got to do. And I'm just like, this is so boring, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's clearly not your play TA then. That's good. (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Um, But yeah, like it, when I was reading that about in the book, um, it was like, again, another, oh, moment. Like, what what do I like to do? Like, you know, yes, I like reading. That That's my kind of thing to do. That's my wind down thing. But other than that, it was a challenge to kind of think of what else I like to do. Because like you said, when I was a child, I loved netball and I loved dancing. And I've given it a go when I was an adult again. And I was like, don't have that same love for it that I did when I was younger. So now it's kind of going into a new season and finding, yeah, what I enjoy to do again, which has been (gasps) interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. The question I actually get asked the most recently is how do you, not what it is and not why should you make time for it. Like people are starting to be sold on the idea that you're not meant to have a life without fun and that you will, having fun carries over a good mood and a good outlook to everything in your life. But it's how to figure out what is fun. Like how do you find what you like, which is again, alarming that any of us have to do that exercise. But I was so detached from myself that I actually had to like research myself by writing down when I noticed I had forgotten what time it was and when I was really engaged and was able to just completely not care what the to-do list is, which is very, very rare for me (laughs) to detach. I've always, I'm always like in the back of my mind, like, okay, after I finish this fun thing, then I'm going to do this. And it was only by going back through the pages and circling the things that showed up the most that was like certain shows and I'd be like, they're all crime. Now it's so obvious. Everyone who knows me knows I love I've loved crime. But six years ago, I hadn't actually figured that out. Even though I could look back at the books I liked or the movies that I watched and figure it out, I didn't know because I'd never thought about it. I just never. And maybe three years ago, it also clicked that a similar thing is war history. All my books, again, not the yayest topic, but all my books are crime or Holocaust history. What? What? Where is that from? No connection in my childhood or anything. It fascinates me. But I only found that out because I looked at some of the movies that I'd watched and they were World War II movies, like fiction. But then I was like, so then I read a couple of books from that era and then I was like, oh, my God, I'm really into this. And then Tattooist of Auschwitz. And then I was like, oh, it's a thing. It's my play to you. <laughs> and yours don't have to be that heavy, don't worry. They don't have to be like full research projects. But it just has to be something that you don't care about giving over three hours of your life to. Cooking. like, And the other thing that people always do that I think is funny is they don't go out and try anything and then they're like, why well, don't I know what my hobbies are? And I'm like, have you tried a class or done a random, like we went to do kids gymnastics recently because we were like, remember at school when you jumped into the foam pit and you couldn't get out and you look so silly? <laughs> Let's do that. 
And we literally throw our bodies against the walls like two-year-olds and I've never been freer in my life. But I wouldn't know that I like that unless I did it. So we've been doing pottery classes, like eat, pray, love, just be Elizabeth Gilbert and try every class, cork and canvas, try painting. You'll hate half the things, but you don't have to do them again. Yeah. Just try. Yeah. I I love that. That's a really good reminder too. Yeah. Now you have, as you said before, your own podcast called Seize the Yay. So can you tell us what has been one of your favorite interviews so far? Can you choose one? Oh, that's like choosing a favourite child. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think first thing I would say is my favourite, favourite part of the show generally is that it's a platform for me to talk to people who are different from each other in so many ways. And what I love about it and what I try to convey in the book as well, and I hope it comes through, is that very idea that everyone's yay is meant to look different and drastically different in structure, in people, in introversion versus extroversion, in hobbies versus, you know, hours of sleep, exercise, nutrition, like everything in your life is fundamentally meant to look what suits you and not what suits anyone else. And the spectrum of people and personalities and ages and nationalities and countries and everything that have been on the show and shown me that you can find happiness from the weirdest, most opposite, like diametrically opposite things has been such a beautiful reminder of the diversity of humanity and given me a lot of permission to not need my life to look like anyone else's as well and just go for however weird it is that I relax to the Holocaust. You know, I really find it really interesting. So I'm not going to resist it any. I used to not watch them because I thought it was weird. Yeah. But who knows? No one even knows I'm watching. Who cares? Like no one else knows. So what was the big deal about that? Um, But I think because of my curiosity for how people's brain ticks and understanding people's brains who are nothing like mine I probably have the most fun when the guest is fluffy and very similar to me but I am most transformed or interested by guests that are totally different to me Mm -hmm. so one that really stood out recently was uh, Dr Richard Harris who's the anaesthetist and technical cave diver who is the epitome of everything about the idea that your vocation and your hobby can be so different to each other firstly, but that sometimes the world needs exactly what you have. And when those 13 Thai boys got stuck in that cave, they needed someone who had enough diving experience to go into a three-hour dive in water as thick as coffee with literally a tunnel as big as your body, three hours in, three hours out, and who could sedate the children. What are the chances that there is only one human being and he is in Adelaide, Australia, and they called him and said, we need you to sedate them because no one else who can sedate them can get in, but no one else who can get in and out can do the injection part. So it was just like this huge, like proving my theory that the world needs exactly your weird combination of skills, whatever that is. that you can pursue any hobby that you want, even though it's so weird to dive into caves that have where you can't go vertically up, but he froths it. He loves it so much. We're totally different ages. We have totally different backgrounds. Our upbringings were so different to each other. But I just sat there like, tell me everything. (laughs) Tell me, you know, I really believe like the most interesting thing ever is that there is a niche community for everything. Like there are people who are obsessed with things that are very different to what you're obsessed about, but they 
combine and bond together over that. So I was like, what is the technical diving community, niche community like? Like, what do you guys talk about? And what's your equipment like? And how do you prepare for a dive? And what does it feel like? Is it cold? How do you touch the, you know, just finding out about someone else's reality is so interesting to me. And seeing him get excited talking about it as well, about like, and then we found the boys and we had to work out the mathematics backwards of how long can we sedate them and how do we get the right drug that, you know, even the way they chose ketamine and the fact that he had to train all the other divers to inject like three times along the way while they were moving with the children. Like I was just, I I feel like you could have told me the interview went for five hours or half an hour and I would have had no idea what the difference was because I just was so fascinated by his love for what I think is actual prison, like invisible water, claustrophobic, three hour. I just, I'm like, what do you think about? What does your brain do? And he's like, I just think about stuff. You know, I really, it's very calm for me. I'm like, I would be panicking. (laughs) Like I would pass out. You wouldn't need to sedate me. I'd be passed out already because I'd be like, yeah. So, you, I mean, you can even tell now how excited I am about it. It was so interesting to me. I found it so fascinating. But almost every guest has been a pinch me moment and they've all, I've walked away from every single one of them with some perspective that I didn't have before. And I, I'm so grateful for that experience because I think everyone you know knows something you don't. And I kind of treat each episode as like my challenge to find out what that is. And usually it's pretty easy because they're amazing and they're all just like, blah, this is my life story. Um, but yeah, and Gary V, I think was one of my, like, never thought I would ever get the chance to actually say a word to you without kind of fainting on the ground first. <laughs> <laughs> we did that one in person. So it was, again, one of those things where I'm like, how am I here? <laughs> Is this real? <laughs> Are words going to come out? Like, I genuinely wasn't sure if words would come out of my mouth. I'm like, just sitting there like, okay. Get ready, he's here. Oh, my God, you've got to say something. Let the words come out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that. Now, to wrap up, what can we expect from Sarah Davidson in the future? (gasps) Oh, okay. Um, I think children is definitely something that Nick and I are starting to think about. We've been married for a year and really want to have kids. We both have adoption in our families, which is so weird. His mum was the first Asian adopted into Australia, and then I was obviously adopted from Asia into Australia. Um, So possibly we'll adopt, possibly we will try and have our own children, Um, but that's probably the only thing that I know we will try and do. Uh, And everything else I actually love for the first time in a very long time being in a position where the book was an enormous year-long process that was one of the best things I've ever done but also a lot more involved than I thought it would be on top of I produced five podcasts this year as well as my own and I didn't expect that also to be like five different at one point of the year I was doing five episodes a week and my other jobs and running Matcha Maiden and running Matcha Milk Bar and it was just and COVID it was just a really really intense year and for the first time I've really given myself permission to treat that year as enough for a little while. Usually I have everything overlapped of like, okay, the next big project is the book. And then, so I had the podcast and then the book and like everything and then the wedding and then everything was kind of lined up. And I think I was already on the cusp of 
realizing that it was time to just not go at 150% for a little while, then the pandemic happened. And that really helped solidify the idea that slowing down is maybe the best way to speed up. I haven't had my best ideas usually come after a bit of a period of distance, even if it's just a, a four day trip to the countryside or something. And we haven't done that for more than a year. So I kind of think I need to give myself a bit of time to not have a plan to figure out what the next plan is. Um, And that's very foreign to say I don't know what's next because usually I'm already working on it. But um, I think going into 2021, everything's moving so fast that being attached to expectations and plans almost precludes better expectations and plans coming your way. And I think a lot of people have learned that for the first time this year. So I hope next year is a wonderfully spontaneous, unexpected ride. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I think obviously still the podcast, um, the book has only been around for three months. So there'll be um, hopefully some in-person events given that we couldn't do them this year. Uh, And then just whatever happens whatever comes. Yeah, I love that. It's, yeah, that bit of spontaneity, which I guess we didn't really get in 2020, did we? Yeah, I kind of feel like we we didn't in big gestures, like a, get on a plane, go somewhere. Mm. But I almost think that because you couldn't plan anything really beyond like outside of your five kilometres, I almost was in just day-to-day much more spontaneous because there were no plans or certainty around anything, really, anything opening, anything being able to go anywhere. So you had to get really creative with each day. And I haven't lived day-to-day like that in a really long time either because I am always like next week's this schedule, blah, blah, blah. Um, And that was really liberating as well to be like, actually nothing happens wrong. Like the world doesn't fall down if you live day-to-day for a little while. In fact, your brain is actually much more present in the things that you're doing. Maybe try that for a little while. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your wisdom with us. I've really enjoyed this chat and I've liked that we've expanded on a lot of what you talk about in the book as well. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me and for being such a beautiful support of the book. You were one of the very first people who read it and just it's such a pleasure to connect properly. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. You can subscribe and leave me a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or find me on Instagram at So Novel Podcast. Thanks for listening and until next time, happy reading.